This podcast is brought to you by UK Coaching, here for the coach. Visit ukcoaching.org to grow your coaching skills and be part of the community. Hello and welcome to another UK Coaching Skill Acquisition Podcast. This podcast is part of a series exploring an ecological approach to understanding theories of learning and coaching. I'm delighted to be joined by another fabulous guest. So could you please introduce yourself to us and tell us a little bit more about your coaching background? Thank you very much for the invite, Marianne. And to be honest, I've, I've listened a lot to the podcast, to the other podcasts, and I feel very honored that I'm excited to speak to you today. So thank you very much for this. Just, yeah, to introduce myself real quick. My name's Fabian Otte. I'm originally from Germany. I'm 29 years old and I'm currently working as the first team assistant and transition goalkeeper coach at Burnley Football Club in the English Premier League. And along this coaching job, which is a full-time coaching job, I'm about to finally finish my PhD at the German Sport University in Cologne. And my supervisors, Stephanie Klatt, Sarah Kate Miller, and also Keith Davids, who works in Sheffield, have been amazing the past years to, to guide me through this project. So I'm very excited about finishing this project hopefully soon. And yeah, a little bit about me and what drives me is really to get my research work or the academic work transferred into practice, because this is essentially my main job as a coach, right? To do really apply the theory and make training better to develop the players that I work with. And I'm really, really trying to nail this down as much as I can and make it understandable or tangible for coaches. And I hope we can work on this today as well and get this as good as possible. Brilliant. Thank you very much. Yes. So a big, um, I'm very um, excited to have somebody who does goalkeeping, which is a little bit different, isn't it, within the football. And, and also um, hopefully really get some nice practical application and a little understanding of what it looks like and why in, in practice. So brilliant. Okay. So my first question then is how and why did you end up exploring a sort of ecological and constraints led approach in your coaching? So I think this goes a little bit with the fun fact I haven't told you yet about me. (laughs) My my journey in the past years has been a little bit unsteady, if you want to say. So in the last 10 years, I've actively played and coached in five different countries and on three continents. So I've been to New Zealand, America, England, the Netherlands, and Germany, and I've been all around coaching and playing football and going to university. And through this amazing experience of moving around that much and really meeting a lot of people with different cultural backgrounds, I really got into this topic of ecological dynamics and the constraints-led approach and really connected to this journey. Long story short, in 2017, when I moved back to New Zealand for the second time, to work as the goalkeeping coach for the National Football Federation, I really got into this topic. And this was part through my coaching job in New Zealand, but also part through my second job working in the university. And to give a little bit of background, I think New Zealand and Australia particularly are very advanced in this topic of ecological dynamics from a science perspective. So the science has transferred into coaching over there a lot really as well. And I was very lucky to be mentored by a fantastic high-performance New Zealand coach called Graham Robson, and also my current PhD supervisor, Sarah Kate Miller from AUT in Auckland. And both really helped me to to, grasp the theory and try to implement it into my coaching. 
And then secondly, I think the football federation was very open for, for us to try new ways of coaching and implementing new styles. And at that time, I was working in the women's national team space. And I really had a good chance after the Olympics in Rio finished. We had four years in the Olympic cycle to focus on training for one and also try new things. So I could really get into applying a constraints-led approach to our daily training work. And by, by having all these input from all these great people around me in New Zealand, I really got the taste of reading a lot of the theoretical work behind it on ecological dynamics while having the chance to apply it to my daily coaching at the same time. And I went through this phase of trial and error, if you want to call. So I, I read theory and spoke to people about it and really tried to apply it. And some things worked brilliantly and some things didn't. And this was a great learning curve for me. And I really got to hang on this and, and yeah, kept pursuing it by, by doing the PhD eventually then. Uh, I, um, I, there's, I've just taken a couple of notes there, actually, when you were talking. And I thought what was really interesting is there seemed to be quite a few things that created almost an optimal environment for you to explore it. So the people you were around, the experiences you'd had before, people like Sarah Jane Milner, and they're the people that you were working with, the football association's um, willingness to embrace new things, the fact that you just finished an Olympic cycle and you had four years to have a little bit of breathing time to experiment. So it sounds like there was almost like this safe learning environment for you as a coach oh a hundred percent it was because i was a young coach at that time as well so so i really like what you say a safe learning environment i could try things without having immediate performance pressure which if you compare this to the environment i'm in now in the premier league is a completely different environment because there is performance pressure all the time so for me it was the perfect situation to really get into full-time coaching because mm -hmm. i could experiment a lot yeah, and it's, I think, um, we may cover this a bit later, and, and if not, maybe in another time, but it's, you know, when we, how we measure our performance as a coach has a massive impact on what we can and can't do and the way in which, you know, if it's, if it all ends up short term, it's really hard to do stuff that, that we recognize is going to really be impactful in the long, in the long game, isn't it? Especially when there's a pressure to, to perform short term. Um, so, oh, great. So um, I guess that leads us nicely onto the next question, which is um, what, what does an ecological approach look like in your practice? You know, so what, what are the things that you changed? What are the things you've ended up doing a bit differently? Um, I think of goalkeeping and I always think of what um, Stu Armstrong called, um, what was it, uh, compost corner? that the goalies get like kicked off somewhere completely by themselves, nothing to do with the rest of the game. <laughs> and they, they practice in this space by themselves. So I'm really fascinated <laughs> to, to hear, you know, what is it, what, is, what does it look like? What does an ecological approach look like now in your oh, practice? That is a very, very interesting point because that is the truth on many, on many football pitches, even these days though. So I think, Without, and this is my goal to be as practical as possible today. So without going into the theoretical nuances, my main goal is to apply theory to practice and really make it tangible for coaches. So there's a few guiding ideas, basically how we set up our training when we focus on skill learning and long-term development. And one critical point is integrating or coupling perception and action as much as possible. So really emphasizing the interaction between the athlete and the performance environment.
And to put it in other terms, you could say information regulates action. And I'm not trying to go too theoretical now, but if I can provide relevant information that are representative of the information the players that I work with face in games, their actions will be self-organized and ex executed eventually in a more efficient and effective way. So according to the theory, this leads to perceptual attunement to relevant information and to better perceived action opportunities. But to take this back to the coaching side, so what can I do as a coach to really integrate perception and action? I can try to manipulate constraints for athletes all the time to make them search and explore in the training environment for the relevant information. And the training design obviously is a critical, critical part here. So if I develop a good training environment, I have this coupling of perception and action all the time. And the next step then is once I know players have the opportunities to yeah, solve problems in different ways and perceive information, I have to guide them and guide their perception on what is most relevant in those training environments. So to put this down to two simple, simple yeah, principles, if you want to call them, for how, how we try to design training sessions is, one, the training session design is the main teacher of learning. So I really try to emphasize this and put a lot of effort into my training designs and really nail these down. Because if we get this right, learning will happen. And the second one, which is a key one, and this is opposing the traditional approach. The coach is not the main problem solver. So it's not me really solving all the problems for the players and prescribing the solutions. It's really being more moderator or facilitator, if you want to call it, and let the players explore and search for solutions in those environments. And we've recently published, uh, for me, a very interesting paper on instruction and feedback methods. Because when we wrote this paper, I learned so much on when, why, and how to apply different feedback methods for players at different learning stages. And like an interesting one that came out that I learned a lot about was the power of analogy learning and how by providing cool analogies and, and giving images, players can learn in a very implicit way, but in a very powerful way because you really touch their emotions and their, and their past experiences. So... I think, again, the, the coach is not the main problem solver. So you got to give the player space to explore. So that's like probably as much theory as we get into now <laughs> that I really try to get into the training sessions. Yeah. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Fabian. So I've got the, the two key things there are the session design becomes the main teacher of the learning. So it's really important how you design your session as a coach, then you become this, um, yeah, sort of constructor or or. Of, of the session and that the second one is the coach is not the main problem solver they they are going to facilitate the athlete solving the problems for that for that them individually um i'll i'll make sure we put a link to the paper actually because that sounds brilliant but uh two two things kind of popped into my head then when i was listening to you there so one of them would be nice just for a quick example of what's what an example constraint would be that you would manipulate but the other thing is I don't I don't watch a lot of football I like watching the women's one I think it just kind of makes it feel a little bit more connected to me but one of the things that I've always found really curious is when there's um like a, a, a you know like a free shot to goal that all of the team stand in front of the goalie so he can't pick up the perception information he needs to save the goal. And I just always think that it seems crazy to me from an ecological perspective. <laughs> so, I think, I think you got a very good point there. So when you talk about these constraints, like for one, I think the line markings are hugely important. So if we talk about pushing goalkeepers into the corner of the field, 
we, we take like a very important piece of information out of the equation. So having all the box markings is, is a huge part for having ecological valid training environments. And then the same thing, like what you said about players moving in front of the goalkeeper and the ball moving all the time. That's another very important constraint that we try to put into our training sessions as much as possible because just kicking balls out of my hands doesn't replicate what they face in the game. So the ball needs to be moving on the ground. There could be strikes from anywhere. The distances change, change between the goalkeeper and the coaches. So these are all constraints that are very, very important if you want to go this route of goalkeeper training in the end. Oh, brilliant. Thank you. Thanks very much. So um, my next question is, what have the benefits been of you? You know, what if there are any real tangible benefits that kind of keep you in this space and keep it exciting? And, and then any challenges that you've found along the way that you think would help other people? This is, I think this is a brilliant question because I can tell you now what I experienced over the last few years. So Obviously, now the minor point is that science for many years has now verified the effectiveness of an athlete environment-centered coaching approach to better develop and prepare athletes in the end for competition. But taking away the science, from my subjective experience, learning is more robust. So what do I mean with that? What I experienced with especially the, the girls that I worked with in New Zealand, the, the goalkeepers really seem to retain and transfer the skills that we practice in training to the competitive environment, so to the, go to the games in the end. And despite learning taking longer, which is a thing that we maybe get to when we talk about the challenges and the non-linearity, learning was more robust. And this is probably for me as a coach, the best thing in the world. If players can transfer what they learn in training to the game, because what you don't want to have, and this is something I experienced in the past a lot, you have players that perform brilliantly in training when everything is structured and everything is predictable, but then they struggle in games because everything gets more messy and more unstructured. So really having this learning effect of taking what you learn in training and putting it into the game, into the real world, if you want to call it this way, is brilliant. So this is a big, big benefit. And then another one, which goes in with the training design. This athlete environment-centered coaching perspective makes training very diverse and exciting. So nothing in our training is ever really identical. And to be honest, sometimes I don't even know where our training will end up and how it turns out. And if you want to call this messiness, this sort of messiness in training is great in my eyes because it constantly challenges players. It couples perception and action and it really takes players out of their comfort zone all the time because you always have to adapt because things are changing constantly and then yeah last but definitely not the least point is the co-designing of training together with the player and really individualizing the training is great fun because I think if you ask many coaches or most coaches and certainly if you would ask me like dealing with people is the main passion that I have. And this is why I'm a coach, first and foremost. So really working together with the players on designing the training all the time is, is one of the greatest experience I have in coaching. And this goes a little bit then away from the traditional teacher-student approach, right? Where, where the teacher or the coach would prescribe the training and make players repeatedly yeah, solve a technique or execute a technique. And the teacher is solving all the problems. So we've talked about this before, right? The coach is not the main problem solver. So with this constraints-led approach, the players solve the problems and you develop those individual training designs together with the players and have a lot of personal interaction. And this is a huge benefit of this for me. And I think going over to the challenge side, 
obviously there is challenges. So if we just take the topic of non-linearity, what I, what I said before, it can take players out of their comfort zone. And athletes, especially athletes developing, show different rates of learning. They need varied ways of learning because not everybody learns in the same way and you need different training environments as well. And this is something from a traditional perspective that can be a big challenge because you don't prescribe one drill and everybody does it. You have to really think about what each athlete yeah, needs, needs for their development. And in my space of goalkeeper coaching, which is a specialist coaching context, this is great because I only work with two, three or four goalkeepers usually at a time. So I really have the opportunity to tailor training environments towards individual goalkeepers. And this can be a challenge at times because it just takes more effort, takes more, more patience sometimes because players develop at different rates. Some go develop quicker, some take longer. But I think you can turn this into a benefit of the environment because again, long-term learning is more robust. And then another thing I find with when we talk about the messiness is that more mistakes happen in training because yeah, everything is more unstructured. And obviously the more unstructured it gets, the more mistakes can happen for players. And again, this takes players out of their comfort zone. For me personally, this is a benefit, but I've experienced players that are not used to this and get really frustrated. So what I found is really important here then is to educate players on why we do these things and really tell them why we try to make them explore and make mistakes as well. Because eventually this can be a catalyst for learning. Because the more mistakes you make and the better you analyze them and deal with it, the better your learning will be. And I have to really educate them on that we yeah, propose and provoke these environments on purpose. Not because I want them to fail, because I want them to learn. So really turning this challenge into a benefit as well again. But this takes time and you have to approach differently for different athletes, of course. But at the end of the day, there are challenges for sure, but they're not really problems if you tackle them in the right way, I think. Yeah, um, brilliant. Thank you, Fabian. And, and I, um, I think a common thread, actually, um, that I hear quite a lot is, is um, that if players have been used to a much more structured way of practicing where somebody is er correcting them because they are doing something wrong, then um, there's almost like this social cultural challenge of gently bringing those players into a new, a new way of performing so that they feel it's okay. They understand that actually it's okay for them to make those mistakes and, and your co the coach isn't standing there, you know, like collecting feedback to throw at them about all the things they did wrong. <laughs> uh, I think <laughs> you know, a great this, this goes into the safe learning environment that you mentioned for my case earlier as a coach. I think this is a big part of putting players in this environment and making them feel comfortable with making mistakes in this training environment because it's with a purpose. Yeah, brilliant. Thank you very much. And very, very nicely summarized. <laughs> um, I've, uh, yeah, I love, I love the... Um, the idea of the co-designing as well with the athletes that you create this environment where you're having um, an opportunity to really get to know them and to co-create your training with them. Um, uh, and also the, uh, the robustness of the training uh, out into the transfer environment. And, um, you know, and that even if the learning takes a bit longer, which actually even from a, you know, my early research was in something called contextual interference, which I'm sure you're uh, familiar with. And so even from a, a, a linear, a more linear 
cognitive and theoretical framework, we still understood that learning, learning that took longer, that was more effortful, would result in much better transfer. Unfortunately, we don't see that in certainly in things like, you know, coach um, assessments, you know, where somebody's expected to improve performance in 40 minutes, for example, in some sports. So that's a whole different podcast. <laughs> but yeah, it's a very interesting point. So recently I've been working with the German FA on writing some modules for coaching, education and for skill, skill training methods, particularly. And the big thing that we talked about was having coaches understand non-linearity and even when they pre-plan a session and are assessed as coaches by coaching educators, it's a great thing for coaches to see all oh, players need a different thing and revamp the whole training session design throughout the session. This is something coaching educators need to see as something brilliant because of this non-linearity again and moving back and forth and individualizing training. Yes, yeah. And um, and that's a that that level is a um, one that uh, I'm going to be doing some stuff on later. <laughs> so, uh brilliant. Okay, so Uh, my last question is, um, what would your top tips be for somebody who would like to explore using an ecological approach um, for the first time or who is struggling a little bit or maybe had a go and has lost a bit of confidence and would like to, you know, experiment again? Oh, I think, first of all, what you said, experimenting is great. It's a great thing it's for coaches as much as for players. So coaches need to have the same opportunities of exploring different ways and just trying things out. So that's, I think, a great starting point. And then if you, yeah, again, if you look at the theory, it's, it's not easy to understand sometimes, but we can try to make it simple in ways of proposing some principles maybe. And I think to give a global context, first of all, I think you always have to differentiate skill learning from direct performance preparation. And I'll give you an example. So when I came to England a few months ago, It was during the Corona crisis and the Premier League was on lockdown. And then once we had the restart, we had seven games in 24 days, I think, roughly it was. So to be very honest, there was little focus on skill learning and training. Even there wasn't much training going on because there was a lot of travel to games and all that. So when we had training, there was a focus on results, performance preparation, also recovery. So there wasn't much of a learning focus. But assuming that we have a time period or a player group that needs development more than anything because the game schedule is different, because it's maybe a youth training session and long-term learning is the focus, there are some principles that we can use when we say we want to focus on skill learning. So one I think is really interesting and important, and we've talked about this before, train the way you play. So really developing representative learning designs. And there's like some key questions that I always ask myself when I plan training sessions. So do my training sessions or my training exercises require players to perceive similar information that they face in the game? Can players make similar decisions like they have to make in the game? So again, going away from me prescribing the solution, players have to make the decisions. And then do players execute various techniques and focus on solving the problems more than anything? instead of repeating the technical solution. And I think, again, if you really get this nailed down in training and represent the competition environment in a good way, learning will take place, no matter what you coach verbally. And then really close to this is, and I love this, this notion or this credo by Nikolai Bernstein, repetition without repetition. This is a great one because I think coaches and myself, it's, it's really easy to understand. So what does it mean? 
do players repeatedly solve a problem and I support them in different ways and they find different ways to support, like to solve the problem or do players just repeat a solution or technique as it's often said. So with repetition, without repetition, we've yeah, really focus on the first one, solving problems all the time. And this includes problems that I pose as a coach, challenges that I give players and yeah, giving players the opportunity to make choices in training. So I think repetition without repetition is a, is a great, great credo that has been around for, I think, 50 years almost. But it's, it's quite yeah. good for coaches to implement into their training. And then another one, which, again, aligns quite closely with this, is my learning environment varied? And do I make players adapt all the time? So it doesn't really stay identical over a long period of time. And to take this into practical coaching, I think a good way of thinking about this is how can I manipulate task constraints as a coach, which could be the size of the goals that I use in goalkeeper training, which could be the line markings, the field sizes, the rules I impose into my training. And then for goalkeeper training, another interesting one that I use a lot is equipment modification. So for example, we have these different special glasses to systematically occlude part of visual perception. So as an example, we have these glasses that take the periphery away. So goalkeepers look a little bit like horses with these things around their eyes so they only have their central vision field and this can either be good to guide perception if i only want them to focus on the central vision field or sometimes it makes tasks much much harder because some of the information that they would perceive normally through their vision field is just yeah it's occluded and and makes the task more complex another interesting example is using different sized and weighted balls when, when I shoot at the goalkeepers because of the different balls having different textures, having different weights, the ball flight changes. So on the micro scale, goalkeepers have to adapt their movements like arm acceleration or hand position. And despite being in a quiet training environment where everything is not as varied, just using different balls varies the training environment. And this is an important one again. I think just varying the training environment constantly and making players adapt and changing what they do all the time is a it's a huge principle to use and then the last one that i find is probably the most important one even again is co-designing training or co-creating training so i think we just repeatedly mentioned this throughout but really taking athletes into the boat and even giving them ownership on what you plan in training or what you analyze in training is is massively important and is massively beneficial for one, because you can individualize training again, because players get to say what they think they need to work on or want to develop. But also, I think it's very important to include their ideas to, to keep them emotionally involved in the training session and keep their motivation up. And from a psychology perspective, there's so many benefits of having this co-designing process intact in training all the time. So, yeah, I think I'd just like to summarize these again. I think train what you play, so keeping it live and representative, repeat the problem, not the solution, constantly vary the training environment so it doesn't stay identical for a long time and players have to adapt all the time. And then at the end, really involving the players in designing the training environment. I think these are principles that every coach can understand quite simply without knowing the theory and can also transfer into training. And Again, this is my passion to really put this into practice. And this is something that I think about every day and that helps me a lot when I plan training sessions. Brilliant. Well, you did a fabulous job of summing up there. <laughs> I, don't, 
I don't need to do the wrap up of those four. Um, thank you so much, Fabian. I I really I really love those, and and I love how succinctly you put that together and those real live examples. Um, I know one of the things um, I found interesting in some of the research I was looking at was the idea that these old fashioned things like reaction time tests, so how quickly do athletes react? And um, and it, this that goalkeepers who are really um, who are really skillful actually re, re, um, react later because their action capability is better. They can move faster, and also they spend more time picking up information. So they actually move later than the inexperienced ones, but they they're more likely to end up in the right place and pick up information that that is um, you know and. That, that's specifying for them, you know? And I think those four things that you wrapped up there just really bring that to life, don't they? That little, you know, more nuanced understanding of what what they actually need to do. They need to be able to read that information, yeah. don't they? And yeah, I think, I think, again, and this is where I think the training design is, is key, if you get this right. And then in the second step, what I mentioned earlier, educating attention or like yeah, moving attention towards critical information then helps for players to learn what is better, better you like better fitted to perceive. But yeah, I think the train design is, from my perspective, the key one here. Brilliant! Thank you so much, Fabian. That's fabulous, and hopefully, um, hopefully you'll be able to to donate as a little example session that I'm putting in with these. So if there's just something nice and simple you think would be great for people to have a look at and experiment, that would be fabulous. And, uh, and yeah, and thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure to um, have this conversation and to listen to you. And uh, yeah, I, thank you. No, I have to thank you because I think you guys at UK Coaching do a brilliant job educating coaches and really, again, transferring the theory into practice and making it become alive. So thank you very much for having me. Brilliant. Thanks. Join us at ukcoaching.org. Whatever you're doing to help people be active and improve, we can help you deliver great coaching experiences at a time to suit you.